The following interview is sponsored by Myriad Uranium. Enjoy. Welcome to the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors in the commodity space to give you the inside scoop on the emerging commodity super cycle. And now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where we break down the commodity space for both new and experienced investors. My name is Jesse Day, and before we get started, standard disclaimer, nothing here is investing advice. Do your own due diligence. And today's guest is the CEO of Myriad Uranium, a uranium exploration company with operations in Niger, Africa. Mr. Thomas Lamb, welcome to the show. Hi. Great to be here, Jesse. Great to have you. And I want to get started like I do with all new guests on the origin story. So how did you first become involved with investing in financial markets? And how did that lead you to the uranium space and to becoming the CEO of Myriad Uranium? Well, um, I was a young corporate lawyer, just uh, working hard at a big law firm. Uh, And, you know, I always had this entrepreneurial sort of feeling deep within me. I knew that I was going to do something. I didn't know what. I quit M&A, securities law, as a young lawyer and um, embarked on this exciting journey. I I left law, wasn't sure what I was going to do, bumped, in, bumped into some friends on the street, uh, engineers, other lawyers, uh, and we partnered. We were young, uh, not very experienced. Um, this was 17 years ago, 20 years ago in Vancouver. And we started some companies and we just figured it out. Uh, luck was a factor. We, um, uh, we worked hard. We, uh, tried things. Uh, we made mistakes, but there was luck too. We had a, had a gold company that turned into a producer and a very nice IPO. Um, I got involved in uh, some cool explorers. I ended up in Russia at, uh, on the board of uh, one of Russia's very largest companies. That was a long time ago before things went uh, a little bit sideways there. Um, very interesting time. Uh, with some colleagues, we started a project generator. This is about 11 years ago in East Africa. Uh, among the companies we created uh, was one called M2 Cobalt. And that had a nice IPO and we sold it to a uh, kind of an offshoot of Glencore called Gervois, Gervois Global. And I was an executive for Gervois uh, for a time. But I, I always knew I had to get back to being an entrepreneur. So here I am. Um, this That's a bit of my journey. Lived in London, London Business School, other things. So a uh, series of fortunate events. You know, that that's, that's that journey. Uranium. You know, I've always been interested in in making the world a better place. This is a, this is another conversation for another time. So I do that in parallel uh, any way I can. Did not anticipate that uranium would be, would be it or one of the key ways I could do that. Uh, you know, who knew, right? Um, so a little while ago, uh, uh, a friend and close colleague, we a part business partner, and his name is Pete Smith, really smart guy. Um, he put together this deal, uh, Myriad Uranium, uh, uh, he helped put together the option to acquire all these licenses, which we'll discuss in due course. And um, so he was CEO up until a few months ago. And uh, I stepped in and I'll tell you more about that. But suddenly Uranium 
too interesting, too important to ignore for me. That's how I got into it. Uh, uh, Pete uh, suggested I become CEO. Uh, I speak French, lots of Africa experience. And as we're going to discuss, big impact that appeals to me, climate change, maybe democracy, interesting angle there. Um, you know, and we've got humanity's future. So all these things together, plus it's a very interesting business that we have at Myriad. Um, the assets we have, really interesting. Jurisdiction, Niger, very cool. Too interesting, too important to ignore. So here I am. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I, I do want to dive into to Myriad and also Niger as a jurisdiction in a bit here. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the macro for uranium. So I want to ask you, from your perspective, what are the main drivers and catalysts that you see working in uranium's favor here in 2023? So, uh, I mean, this is, this is all of a sudden, this is the most exciting place to be, in, in my view. Um, okay, so we already know that uh, nuclear, I think, powers about 10% of the world's, like creates about 10% of the world's electricity. Right. So, but things are, I, okay. So there's that. Um, uh, but there is so much happening in this space now. Um, things have been fairly stable for a while, but all of a sudden, so we have about 440, these are the stats, about 440 reactors operating right now. Um, 60. So, okay. So they consume a lot of uranium as it is, and there's a bit of equilibrium or has been in the market, right? But 60 new reactors under construction, uh, 100 have been ordered, 300 more proposed, and there are lots of restarts happening. So we have old reactors that are being, you know, freshened up, turned back on. Um, we also know uh, uh, countries and some are being a little quieter than others about it, but they are uh, putting off closures. You know, they're... Uh, you know, all this together, if you do the, you know, people add up the uh, uranium demand and it's just kind of going like this, isn't it? So, okay, so that's, these are just sort of the basic 100,000 foot stats. You go a little bit deeper into this uh, and which we can, you've got uh, like stockpiles of, of hex, for example, diminishing. This is UF6, right? So for various reasons, this is going to require more buying in the spot market. Right. This is so. This is this is sort of it's, it's key for what's going to happen to the uranium price in in the near future. Right. We've got China building a big strategic uranium reserve. You've got Kazatom's Kazatom Prom's. I forget the acronym. Is it ANU? I That's can't right. Remember in a yeah. ANU there, Energy. So, so I mean that is going to be inhaling a lot of uranium. Um, we've got, of course, Sprott. We've got the U.S., which I think you, you mentioned right at the beginning. All sorts of interesting things are happening. Uh, this is going to be a lot of demand created. So, the, so, so these are important points with regard to uh, demand. Now, supply, the other side of the equation, very interesting, right? So to get to the next level of production, we're going to need 65 or $70 uranium. We're currently around 50. Um, that's point number one. So we need to get up there. Uh, Long-term contracts are being done at a higher price than spot. Some cases, significantly higher is sort of what you what you're hearing. That is also going to pull up the spot price of uranium that we see that's visible to us. Um, uh, other supply things. If you want me to list just a few more, yeah, I could just absolutely. Tell you. 
okay, cool. Well, you know, my understanding is that because Adam Prom, their production is going, their headline production is going to be quite a bit lower this year, four to five million pounds less, right? So now they have things they have, they have contracts they have to make up. Their utilities, they're going to exercise options to buy more uh, uranium. This is going to really pull things up. People are going to have to buy on the spot. Uh, you know, that is interesting. Um, I believe Yellow Cake has an option to buy another. This is one, one and a half million pounds is what I saw uh, from Kazatomprom. So you're going you're to have, just to take the Kazatomprom example, they're going to have to be buying in the spot, right, to satisfy their obligations, keep up their own reserves. You know, very interesting. Lots of other groups that are going to be buying physical uranium. We, of course, we all know Sprott, et cetera. So one other point I want to make, too, is that uh, the underfeeding that was also helping uh, in the past, I believe, has that's over now, the underfeeding, which you could, you know, you could circle back and access that. Uh, and so that is, these, these are all factors that are just make everything, they're going to conspire together to make this really exciting. That's, that's, that's what I've seen. So that's my comment on the, on the, on the forces at, at work here, right? You've got a few other bigger things too. Just, just conceptually, you've got all these uh, reactors under construction. There are long lifespan assets. They're going to be cranking out. They each require, depending on the design, call it half a, like 500,000 uh, 500, um, pounds of uranium each on average, depending on, on the design, et cetera. You just add them all up whew, and they're 60 years, 80 years. They're going to be, uh, you know, requiring uranium. It's uh, you add up all the numbers, good situation. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about what you were touching on earlier, which is, you know, you're interested in humanitarian causes and you see uranium as kind of a, a net positive for humanity, which is one of the reasons you're involved, because obviously we're seeing an energy crisis in Europe that may spread uh, further globally. We've been lucky. I'm in Europe at the moment. We've been quite lucky that we've had a very warm winter, which is nice. Um, and at, at, Natural gas supplies are currently doing quite well, but there is, of course, concern for next winter. There's a there's a lot of policies being put in place in, in these various countries that are kind of hindering uh, a successful energy transition. And that includes some countries still demonizing nuclear energy, such as Germany and Belgium and a few other outliers. I think Austria is in there as well. So, you know, looking forward, how do you see uranium and nuclear energy potentially solving the energy crisis? up ahead out of nowhere to me i mean smart people who've been watching this have understood this probably for decades and you you may have seen this graph that if everybody had followed the french decades ago climate change would have been solved that would have been it pretty interesting well that's that wasn't me i was paying attention to other things this has come out of nowhere but i have been as you can see I, i'm now focused on this and uh and looking at it. it i mean this does seem to be the solution doesn't it it's it's a solution to okay we've already you know climate change uh, etc but politically um, you know really nice energy crisis solution it is right here in front of us available so you've got uh, fact that a lot of countries are at the mercy of the few oil producers that a lot of them are run by autocrats we can just tell it like it is you've got countries you know. Some countries that produce a lot of oil, Canada, U.S., et cetera, are not like that. But a lot of the ones that produce a lot of oil, these are difficult countries that are run in ways that interfere with freedom, 
you know, democracy, et cetera. We need to mitigate the negative, uh, you know, aspects and the influence that these countries have. I think, so I think, no, I don't know for sure. I've been thinking of thinking as best I can about this, that, that nuclear is, a, is, is really going to be a solution, but it has a really good chance of, um, of subtracting power from autocrats, giving stability to Western countries that are open societies. You can have baseload power, you know, you've built these things, baseload power. You're not at the mercy of the, what do they call it? The gas cans next door. For example, Europe and Russia. I mean, this is just the great, you know, the example, isn't it right now? This is what you're talking about. So, um, uh, basically you've got, uh, Tons of oil and gas that has historically been coming from Russia. This is a, an arrangement that is dates back to sort of mid to late Soviet times, especially between Soviet Union and Germany, export terminal out of St. Petersburg. And uh, the Soviets and then the Russians have been very smart about just locking up that relationship and causing this reliance. And this is going to uh, potentially solve that. Um, you're going to have baseload power, clean, so you're going to get... Uh, politics, a little bit of freedom, plus climate change all together here as a, you know, as, as countries adopt uh, nuclear. And this is just in Europe and the West. Asia, also very interesting, uh, South Central Asia and, um, and China, et cetera. Yeah. So I'm very excited about uh, uh, nuclear as a, as a way to promote democracy, I suppose, and open societies. I think it has that potential. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting angle that I hadn't heard before, but but very relevant. Um, I want to dive into jurisdiction now, and specifically the area that Myriad Uranium is located in, in Niger. Obviously, quite a well-known uranium mining district. Orano's been there for a while. You've got Global Atomic moving towards starting a mine there. Um, GoviX is there as well. So in your opinion, what makes Niger attractive from a uranium mining and exploration perspective? So, uh, Niger is surprisingly, uh, good. Uh, it's in a, it's in an unstable region, right? It's surrounded by Chad, Mali, Burkina Faso, Nigeria, etc. Uh, but Niger or Niger has been explored by the French. It's a French colony, uh, or colonial, uh, country, I suppose, um, for decades and decades. Um, French government, uh, company, uh, Kojima, Arriva, now Arano is the, you know, different iterations, currently Arano. Been there for decades, explored the whole uh, Timrasoy Basin, which is one of the great uranium basins on a regional scale, and have made massive discoveries. Uh, so um, what that has done is it has uh, created the infrastructure in Niger to support large-scale uranium mining, exploration, um, it has created several generations of Nigerians who uh, understand mining, are very highly skilled, understand its value. You've got government people there, service providers. This is drillers, geologists, geophysicists, everybody there. You, and you have infrastructure. This is built over decades. So this, this from a, just from a practical point of view, somebody like, you know, like me coming into the country, everything is there to enable you to, uh, do your business, which is look for uranium or build mines and produce uranium. Um, you also have geopolitically, you have Niger as, an, as a bit of an Island in this 
region that has been unstable. Um, and everybody wants it to be the stable place. So you have uh, a huge U.S. military base, and which is not far from the uranium-producing region. I don't know if that's intentional or not. You have the French, who, of course, 70% plus of their electricity is generated by nuclear. Niger is kind of their... It's not exclusive, but it's their spot that uh, uh, they get to kind of uh, have a lot of... They get to have secure supply because they get to be Niger-focused. It's their area, whereas they have joint ventures everywhere else, whether it's Athabasca, Kazakhstan, etc., you know, um, anything could happen over there. Because Adam Prom decides that, you know, Kazakhstan needs to shift. They've got issues with, for example, China or internally. You know, what, what's going to happen to Arano? Uh, Athabasca, we don't know how long everything's going to last there. It might, they may not be producing uh, uranium forever. Whereas in Niger, uh, Arano has at least 50 years of, of reserves, probably a lot more. Um, it's got its... Imararan, 380 million pounds of uranium uh, near surface. This is like Arano's mine of the future. It's right there. We've got other assets there that are producing. They've got a really high capacity mill, etc. So my point is that I'm coming to is France is not going to let, in my view, is not going to let anything happen to Niger. It may have issues with the government. It may need to step back from being at the forefront and visible. We're going to have lots of other players in there. We're going to have the Coviexes and Global Atomics and the Myriad Uraniums and others in there being very active. Uh, but France itself and the Americans and the government of Niger and the people of Niger, everybody's going to be working together here. This is my sense. I was there a few months ago meeting Prime Minister, the Prime Minister, Minister of Mines and lots of others. You know, my sense is everybody's very focused on keeping Niger stable no matter what happens in the surrounding region. So that's what one of the things that makes it, uh, these are some of the things that make it, uh, you know, just a really good jurisdiction. Do you mind if I add too? a big endorsement happened about 10 days ago, two weeks ago, global atomic just raised $115 million of equity for its DASA project right there in the timber soy. This is a development stage project. They're going to be a producer soon. Uh, but Big funds, sophisticated groups, 60% of the money came from Canada, 20% US, 20% Australia. These are, these are groups that did a lot of due diligence. They, they understand Niger, they understand the risk, and they've decided this is a highly investable place. It's got a future, uh, you know, stable. It's a lot of money for, uh, you know, company like that uh, to raise um, in, the, in West Africa. So... Um, very exciting for everybody and a big endorsement of Niger. I hope that that's, uh, you know, relevant to your viewers and interesting to your viewers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, I do want to touch a little bit on the political situation in Niger. You mentioned it's, it's quite a stable district at the moment, and it probably will be that way moving forward. You have a pretty unique perspective in that you've been able to meet the prime minister, the minister of mines, and so hear what they have to say as well. So how has your relationship been with the local government, and how, how does that give you confidence that, that the region's going to remain stable as a uranium mining and exploration district moving forward? Well, they've got a, you know, the new generation has come up now. So for decades, you had the, the old government interacting with Arano, French government, etc. They had their own dynamic. You know, if you, if you, I've spent a lot of time in Africa the last 11, 12 years interacting with, interacting with governments and the, 
different people involved in the, in the, in the sectors or in the sector, but in, in different countries. And what I see are these young, either younger, they're my age now, fifties and plus, but they're sort of the young Turks, et cetera, who've come up and they are very sincere. They want to uh, reduce corruption. They want to have a strong mineral sector that attracts a lot of investment. They want to create jobs for their people. They want to raise living standards. They want to have a, you know, a nice place to live. And they see the mining and uranium mining in Niger's case as part of the key part of the solution. So, you know, this is, this is, this is what's going on within the government and in society, you know, they want this and they, you know, they, uh, some of the questions in the, and the conversations were around that. How do we, you know, how do we attract more, I mean, Canadians and Australians, uh, we're very lucky there we're wanted, you know, come in. Uh, there, there's some other dynamics when we can get into this, uh, with regard to Arano, it's been, it's almost like when they're in agriculture, when there's a monoculture pros and cons to having just Arano and the government together for decades, right? All sides, including Arano want more variety in the timber soy basin. And so, so that's happening at the government level too. And bureaucracy, the businesses there that support all this. Uh, so you can, you get a sense of that too. It'll be healthy for everybody. Everybody wants it. Yeah. Right. Well, let's touch on Arano a little bit because I know that Miri Geranium has a relationship with them. And could you talk a little bit about your connection with Arano, the impact they've made in that region and how you expect their influence to perhaps benefit the uranium mining industry there? Yeah, I mean, we were just meeting. I was just in Cape Town last week, uh, met with some senior Arano people and talking all about this. Um, and uh, so there's layers to the onion, right? Um, we could go get to get in deep um, colonial history dynamics. You've got uh, um, different pressures uh, in the region. Uh, it's easy to, it's easy to blame different, different groups and things like that for the way things are. And, and uh, okay, we'll, we'll get into that in a moment, but the, the overall legacy of that Arano has, you know, left to and created within Niger is extremely positive. This is, uh, you know, this is my perspective. So the come in and, uh, explored this basin, um, found a lot of uranium and we know that there's still a lot of uranium there, a high degree of confidence. Um, the legacy is, and I'll just circle back to massive infrastructure built training, uh, a mentality, uh, you know, an understanding that the uranium is going to lead to, and mining is going to lead to it if it's done right. And everybody works together to a, you know, an uplift in, in Niger. So, um, and you've got, I mean, from a practical point of view too, uh, Niger has done all this regional scale exploration and companies like ours, Global Atomic, GoVX and others is the Chinese that has a leak mine and there are others you know, we're all benefiting from this because we're the whole basin was Arano's or its predecessors. So everybody is leveraging what Arano has done. Arano also has its mill, uh, you know, very nice high capacity mill that's going to take feed initially from Global Atomic. We all benefit from that. Arano wants material. So this provides us with all sorts of options. You know, we, if we find uranium, we start producing. We've got Arano there. Global Atomic is soon going to have its facility. We're going to be able you, you could feed feed their facility too as interim step before, for example, you um, build your own uh, processing facilities. 
This, these are really important things from a practical point of view. Also, uh, you know, there are tens of thousands of very highly skilled Nigerians there. They're all available. They're available. Um, and, uh, they're there to work and, and, and create, you know, they, they want to participate in this and, uh, and, you know, that is an incredible help. You don't have to start from scratch. I've worked in other countries and built companies in other countries, but you really are starting from scratch in terms of infrastructure, uh, training people, um, government, the bureaucracies there, you know, they, they don't have any operating minds. Niger is just right in that sweet spot and underexplored. So here we are. Right. And do, do you think it presents an advantage in, in Niger in terms of permitting time? Because in a place like Canada, for example, you can get a lot of ESG red tape. And of course, ESG is not a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. But some people believe in some Western nations, it's gone a little bit too far. Um, everything you have to get through in terms of the government actually permitting and allowing you to both explore and start a mine. So have you found that Niger is maybe a little bit more eager to get projects up and running and therefore it makes the barrier to entry a little bit lower for a company like yours? Everything I hear and understand. So again, I've been, I've been CEO for a few months. I've been in Africa for years. I've had some, so, um, but I'm somewhat familiar now. I've done a deep dive, talked to all the CEOs, management of these companies that have been there for a long time. So I, I do understand a fair amount. The answer is an emphatic yes. Massive advantage in Niger. First of all, we have our exploration permits. We have our permits to do everything we need to do. It's not like, for example, British Columbia, which I is my home. I love British Columbia. You get an exploration permit, then you're going to have to apply for a drilling permit. Then you're going to have to wait for that. You're going to have to interact with, you know, local uh, First Nations. Um, some of them are, are very straightforward to deal with. Others is going to take more time, you know, and there's a bit of uncertainty injected into all the process, right? Here, now, listen, I mean, to be fair, there's a bit of luck. Niger is pre-Sahara desert. There's a lot of these areas are fairly empty. So that helps versus what we call culture. There being, you know, settlements and, you know, people roaming around. So that is a bit different, but it, it doesn't matter. This is the, the mentality in Niger is let's get the, let's get things done. You get your exploration permit, boom, you have all, everything you need to get to discovery, to drill a resource. Okay. Then you apply for a mine, mine permit. You do your environmental and mine permit together. The government has a year to respond really and grant the permit. So you interact. This is, this is my understanding that all this happens. Like, I mean, that is very fast. You can be up and, and going in just a few years, really. So contrast that with, you know, I see stats like 13 year average in Canada to go from, you know, you made a discovery, build a mine. I mean, whereas in Niger, just a few years, this is massive. You put your money in, you know, if you're an investor, you've invested in myriad, we make a discovery. We're going to, you know, we can just go up that curve like a rock, well, hopefully like a rocket ship very quickly, you know, up the stages and be producing uranium and everybody gets to kind of get in and out where they want without having to wait. It could be not just 13 years, but a lot of cases that, you know, Jesse, you're familiar with, you've seen, could be a couple decades, up to 30 years in Canada, right? Yeah. Everybody's waiting around. This, if you discount cash flows and all this type of thing, it just destroys the value, right? It's, you, you know, really tough. Everybody's sitting around. Uh, it's not like this in Niger, makes it very exciting. And, uh, I mean, I just want a little plug for Global Atomic. You can see they're just on this, you know, 
the cusp here. This is a, that's an exciting company to to also invest in, in my view, just because of what how Niger works. They're going to be able to start producing. Um, you know, they're leveraging all the benefits. They've got Arano there. They get to feed Arano's mill. They get to build their own facilities. We, you know, we're going to do the same thing. Hopefully, we may also make a discovery can do that, and I think um, you know create a ton of value for uh, shareholders. Yeah, well, let's dive into Myriad Uranium specifically now. So for those unfamiliar with the story, could you give us an overview of the company and, and what you guys are up to in Niger? Yeah, happy to. Um, so uh, we are a CSE-listed um, junior explorer, new. We acquired an option over just over 1,800 square kilometers of uranium exploration licenses. So again, Timmersoy Basin, Niger. Um we have the, it's a six year option to acquire hundred um, percent starting last August. The terms of that are that we, uh, our partners, our local partners who optioned us the property, they got eight and a half million shares. We only have 26 and 26 million shares out approximately. So they're a big interest in our company. We're very aligned. going to jump around a little bit and just mention that those shares are trickled out over three years so that we're really tied together here to make a discovery. So again, Myriad Uranium, CSE listed, will soon have our uh, Frankfurt ticker, our OTC ticker. Everybody's going to be able to trade. And we're trading at around 33, 34 cents, so just under a $9 million market cap. And we're very interesting, and I'm going to, a little bit different than everybody else uh, who is either Greenfield or more advanced. We sit in between, so I think our value, uh, you know, people can figure out their own comps, but I think we're going to be re-rated, in a, and, uh, and here's why. So we have four licenses aggregating over 1,800 square kilometers, but they lie on the structure right up against, number one, Africa's largest uranium deposit. That's 380 million pounds at Imeraren. That's Arano's Imeraren. We are on the structures that... We, we interpret come together on our license, the Arlet Fault that goes into Imeraren, and then another structure that goes off to Govex's Madawella. We're only, we're very close to Madawella. We're right up against Imeraren. This is like prime territory. Um, we also have another license just further south at the intersection of the key Arlet Fault and the Azusa Fault that just down the road goes to uh, Global Atomics uh, DASA project. So we're, we're at the, and that's just south of Imerera, and we're, we're right in the prime spots. We also have two other licenses that are very exciting. I invite people to go to our website and take a look. So we're in position A. These are our RANO licenses uh, that they would still be exploring if it weren't for Fukushima. These were their exploration licenses, which they relinquished post-Fukushima. $19 uranium, there's some geopolitics, uh, you know, other issues, but they, they relinquished these licenses. Our local partners grabbed them. And we've got them now. On top of this, Arano explored our licenses, they conducted regional scale exploration. They found uranium, 161 boreholes, uh, 24,000 meters, airborne geophysics, quite a bit of work, millions and millions of dollars of work. We have all that data. I'll add that Arano um, formulated plans to do intensive exploration in our license areas. Never quite got to it. Fukushima exited exploration. So here we sit with, you know, we're incredibly lucky at it. We wouldn't have been able to do this deal now, now that uranium is, has hotted up. But my predecessor, Pete Smith, went to Cambridge with some 
people that are connected to the people in Niger who was able to do this deal and we're extremely lucky. So we're way ahead of the game here. Uh, we have these plans. Third thing I'd mention is that Global Atomic has made these, uh, well, several actually high grade discoveries that fo together form the DASA project. This is a new paradigm in, in the Timorsoy. It's more like Athabasca now, you know? So what you had is you've had Arano for decades, uh, exploring the, the top 300 meters of the Timorsoy basin. Imararan, world's largest, uh, sorry, Africa's, uh, largest uranium deposit, probably world's second largest. Uh, that lies in the, the deposit lies in the, in the sandstone roll front deposit, top 300 meters. Um, there's, there's a, all of a sudden the rocks change, get older, and you have the carboniferous. And Arano did not explore below that. Global Atomic did. They drilled deeper. They found this massive high-grade uh, uh, resource down there and has totally changed everything. And Now, just as Fukushima was happening, things were transitioning in, in Niger, Arano saw that Global Atomic had made these discoveries. We have some of their reports where they're just starting to talk. Wait a second, maybe we need to drill deeper. You can read it in French. It's very interesting for, for me seeing this and excited, you know, but, but they never, they, they weren't able to do it. They made plans. We have those plans. We're going to do that. Hopefully we make one or more DASA-like discoveries on our properties, um, leveraging insights from, insights from Global Atomic, the data we have, and Arano's plans. That's our story. Yeah, well, having that data from Arano and being able to leverage it is is definitely a massive asset. And you, you touched on Global Atomic and their operations there. You know, that they've discovered not too long ago grades of, of U-308 that are equivalent with what you'd find in the Athabasca Basin, which I think surprised a lot of people. So how does that information inform your exploration efforts and, and what you might expect to, to find in your own, in your own uh, exploration? Very cool. So, uh, you know, a few months ago they reported, uh, I think it was just over 46 meters of over 3% uranium. That's really gangbusters within that 0.7 meters over 13%. Uh, you know, it's got us very excited. So down where one of our licenses is just under 20 kilometers, I think from DASA on the same Azusa fault, we can see the displacement there. This is a secondary fault to the main one that controls has always been thought to control mineralization in the basin. That's the Arlet Fault. You know, the secondary fault that hosts DASA, you know, we are studying very carefully the geology that at DASA, it's again, just down the road from us, you know, the, the, the um, uh, where the uranium has been captured and how, uh, and we're hoping to, uh, you know, high resolution geophysics, other methods to, you know, understand the faults at a deeper level in the Carboniferous and uh, and basically leverage everything we can learn from what Global Atomic has done to point our drills to the same locations, you know, analogous just down the road. And, you know, so the, the, this is it. I mean, this is going to change the paradigm, I think, in Niger. I, I, I personally believe the Timorsoy is going to, you know, be one of the hottest places on, in, on the planet for uranium exploration. Um, hopefully we're a big part of that. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, could you give us an introduction to the team at Myriad Uranium and, and how you plan to leverage their expertise in your efforts? Sure. I'll, start, I'll go straight to our chief geologist. Uh, his name is George Van der Valt, South African. 
He uh, he's a he's a uranium uh, exploration expert. Uh, we're very lucky to have him. So he ran Peninsula's Karoo project, uh, and and uh, had over twelve thousand boreholes. Very complex. Um, so he's a, he's a superstar. So I want to mention him first. Uh, he's leading everything. Also on our technical committee, David Miller. He's from Wyoming. Uh, he's an in situ recovery expert. Uh, worked with Utah International, became a Riva, and uh, he's a well known uh, guy. He's going to become more and more useful and uh, important as we as we grow. We have several people uh, on the ground um, in Niger who are. Uh, Actually, I'm going to save mentioning them because we haven't quite made it official yet. Um, uh, but there's a lot of expertise there that we get to uh, leverage. These are Arano, former Arano people, for example, international experts. So uh, we're very lucky there. Two more board members that are West African, Dai Kaba and Cyril Amadi. They were appointed by our local partners who uh, appoint two board members, Dai Kaba uh, until recently, senior partner at McCarthy Tetro, a big international law firm, in and he was a partner in Toronto. He's now West Africa-based, very well-known, high-end uh, mining lawyer, uh, major asset for us. Cyril Amadi, Germany-based banker, West African uh, origin. He's worked with lots of big groups, Endeavor Financial, etc. Um, Aziza Souza, uh, he's Canadian, Nigerian. All of these... Folks are close to, um, you know, government key key people that we need, uh, so they're gonna, you know, they're gonna be a big help to us. Our other board members, senior Canadian geologist Fred Bonner, major asset Guy Pinsent. He's a businessman, finance expert, Central uh, Europe based. Uh, he happens to run. He's sort of multi dimensional guy, but he's the CEO of. Uh, Central uh, Europe's largest self-storage business, but he's a bit of a financial genius. Um, went to Cambridge with my predecessor, uh, Pete Smith. Uh, we have a sort of a superstar board, especially for, and I'm on the board too, uh, uh, superstar board for, especially for our level. We're just getting started here. I also mentioned that, that uh, our small founding group owns about 10 million of the shares and are, you know, friends and family, close people. So we have, the cap structure is eight and a half million in the hands of our local partner, around 10 million, our group. And then a you know, fairly small amount held by mostly people that we know quite well. So it's a tight structure. We've all paid hard money for our shares. Uh, people who know understand that that that's changes the dynamic. We're big shareholders. Uh, we paid, uh, you know, significant money for our shares. And um, it's a really good foundation for the company. Management is good board good and we've all uh you know we're big shareholders yeah that's great management with skin in the game obviously one of the main things that investors look at with a project like this so that's excellent thank you so much for joining us today thomas um, i'll put a link to the myriad uranium website in the description below so people can check that out and would love to have you back on again sometime later this year to get an update anytime yeah it's been a pleasure jesse Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.